This week on Life and Faith. I want the benefits of deep work in my life. I want to be able to read for two hours with no one interrupting me. I want to be able to think through an article and write this essay with no one interrupting me. And I realize like this is what women are up against when they try to carve out meaningful work for their lives. So we know that a society needs women to meaningfully contribute. But I think we keep expecting women to meaningfully contribute while also expecting them to engage in all of these interruptions that in reality they're having to overcome to meaningfully contribute. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the Isa army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, Justine, it's been a few months since you wrote a column for CPX reflecting on your experience of shutdown and you were juggling a whole lot of things at once, working from home as well as homeschooling. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Honestly, it felt like failing on every front, right? I would like to think that I'm a writer. I would like to think I'm a mother, but I think in both respects, I failed utterly during that period. Not a good self-esteem period. No, it was terrible. Um, and it was really, you know what I've realized? I've realized that I had the next step down from stress-induced hives in that time. So physiologically, it was actually pretty bad as well. And I think um, it was really confronting as well, because like any crisis, a crisis is going to bring things to the surface that have normally just gone on in the background, but you can kind of be distracted by your normal life. So you don't notice that stuff. But COVID brought stuff in my relationship and my marriage to the surface that became impossible to look away from. And so you're dealing not only with the incredible work of every single day, just trying to get through the day, but then you're just going, what have we done? What have I done? What have I signed myself up for? And how did this, how did this get to this point? And so that's deeply confronting as well. What was it like in your house, Simon? Well, I feel slightly guilty, Justin, because it wasn't anywhere near as bad as, as what you experienced. I mean, you're in a very different stage. Our kids are a lot older. So I feel for you uh, with, with little kids and having to wrestle with that. And I just think it's a, we're at a different stage. So it's a different level of care uh, that you're being required to, to deliver. But Justine, I totally got the things that you were talking about in that column. I mean, you argued that COVID shutdown revealed a whole lot of things that we take for granted and that, and I'm quoting you here, care is whatever happens in the background while the rest of us get on with the real work. Care, we believe, is women's work. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I have a slightly more nuanced take on that now. I, I think I want to say that COVID has shown how unevenly we value care because obviously there's been that spotlight on nurses and teachers um, and, and all the care work that they do. At the same time, it's not clear whether this is going to translate into better pay for these kind of chronically underpaid and, and insecure uh, professions. And I think the same goes for women, really. Like uh, we, we've just assumed that this is all the stuff that women do. and But then because we assume that this is what women do in terms of looking after the house, looking after the kids, etc., it's very easy to take it for granted and we forget to acknowledge it and pay due respect to it. 
Now, clearly, Justin, people will be affected by the pandemic or the shutdown in a whole lot of different ways. But you're interested in how women are particularly experiencing this time. Yeah, I was really um, interested to hear a journalist call this the pink collar recession because women have been dominating those industries that have been hardest hit by shutdown, retail, accommodation, hospitality, all these sorts of things. And even if women have kept their jobs, they've had to work from home while homeschooling. Uh, and for New South Wales, that was a time. They're, they're back doing it in, in Victoria. And in those contexts, if you're working from home and you've got homeschooling going on, you've got women like me who've been the main parent doing the homeschooling as well. I mean, we're, we tend to be the ones working part time. So we're flexible. I hate that word, it turns out, after this period. And, you know, I, I don't know, I talk to mums and it just seems as though we're the ones that the kids just interrupt more as well. So there's that. Well, flexible and available is is probably the that's the assumption right yeah now obviously not all households are like this there's differences and so on but i'm not really surprised by what you're saying i mean my wife michelle talks about this all the time that women are the ones that are having to juggle all these things and when they're working and they carry so much of of the load and i i think even when you're intentional about it and thoughtfully trying to get it right it's not always easy just the, the mere practicalities of what people are facing to work out how best to to navigate that and I think so many people are in this situation and one of the depressing things about all of this is that my experience is pretty textbook um, there's this professor Lynn Craig down from the University of Melbourne and she's been doing a study of families during lockdown and she's found that homeschooling has created an extra six hours of childcare in a day and that women tend to do four hours of that and men two hours. And then there's the housework created by being at home. It takes up about an hour for women and it takes about 30 to 40 minutes for men to do. And so there's this two to one ratio where women are doing twice as much childcare, twice as much housework as men uh, during lockdown. But that's been the story also long before lockdown as well. Uh, a couple of years ago, Annabelle Crabb, the ABC political commentator um, and journalist, wrote The Wife Drought, which, as far as I'm concerned, makes her the patron saint of this issue. And I found this talk she did at the Wheeler Centre where she referenced these ABS figures that show that when you've got married couples with kids, if the woman is not in paid work at all, she does about 65 hours on average housework per week. And that just boggles my brain. But if she works part-time, this goes to 52 hours a week. If she's working full-time, she does 41 hours of housework a week. Gosh. And then... Women will change the amount of housework they do depending on, you know, um, whether they're not in paid work or if they're in paid work full-time, you know. So you'll notice, those of you who can add up will notice that moving from, you know, not in the paid workforce at all to working full-time, that lady dropped 24 hours of housework like a full day of housework. And who picked it up? Well, her husband picked up 34 minutes of it, but, you know, the rest of it just sort of poof, disappeared. But you she's know, working an extra five days. The house is dirtier. By the way. <laughs> or, you know. That's Annabelle Crabb in conversation with journalist George Megalogenis at the Wheeler Centre, offering a snapshot of the pre-COVID breakdown of housework between men and women. That's also been reflected in households during shutdown. To get a sense of how women have been faring during this time, Justine talked to Devi Abraham, 
a writer and podcaster based in Melbourne that's currently back in lockdown after a spike in COVID cases. I think last week was our first week of stage four lockdown. And I think it started actually only on Wednesday last week, but we've treated it like stage four for a while. So I don't really, I think it was just last week that it started. And so what's that been like for you and your family? Well, it has had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So what it means in terms of practical reality is devices and negotiating on, um, you know, we have family uh, restrictions on the boys' devices. And so it means like all of a sudden they can't download this file and now mom and dad have to get involved. And now it means getting interrupted every 10 minutes. It means it means not being able to finish a task. For me, that's what it means. Um, and yeah, it means having a lot of interruptions, having a lot of unfinished business. It means getting to the end of the day and having still a, a mountain of tasks that need to be done. I think that's probably one of the hardest things is you put them to bed at seven o'clock. Thankfully, they go to bed pretty early and then there's still a lot more things that need to be done. And kind of having to prioritize what goes next. And Yeah. Yeah. And you have two boys, right? Yeah. They're seven and nine. So they're grade one and grade three. Yeah. Wow. And your husband is working from home as well? He is. So he's been working full time from home since March. How have you and your husband kind of negotiated responsibilities at this time? Because I know that you write and you're a podcaster, so you've got stuff to do as well. Yeah, it has it has really brought challenges that we already had right to the forefront. <laughs> That's what I would say. I think I think my work is often not the the focus of our family life, you know, whereas he would go off to work at a certain time in the morning, come home at a certain time, and everything that happened during the day was sort of absent from his his mind. And so all of a sudden, we're all together in the house. There's been a level of negotiation we've had to do as a family as we just readjust to doing life together. But then at the same time, I've had to very much had to speak up to say, okay, and because the work that I do is sound sensitive, I can't be interrupted when I'm podcasting. Um, we've had to really talk about, okay, what does Debbie need to get Debbie's work done? What do you need to get your work done? And have had to form much more of a partnership as we, as we face this time together. And really, we're looking at an uncertain, are the kids going back to school at all in 2020? We don't know, you know. It's just, it's hard. It's really hard because often the division of labor also is about who is bringing in more money. Uh, and so whose employment, therefore, has a greater focus. And I think that is a really tricky thing to work out in a marriage where you're both of equal value and you're contributing of equal value to the world. And you value each other and each other's contributions equally in that sense. But then there's the very practical thing that you're having to negotiate on because one person's job brings in the money that is funding your life in that sense. And so having to, um, you, you can't always break things down in a totally 50-50 way. It's not always possible. I asked Debbie what it was like to go back into lockdown, but this time knowing what awaited her. So I still remember dropping my kids off to school in June when school went back. And I just remember crying when I left because the weight of the kind of the last two months of having them at home in a time when I thought they'd be at school and I'd be able to get all these different things that, you know, done that I didn't. So the weight of just going, oh, they're at school. Thank God I have the next six hours of silence to get things done was just so amazing to have that. And 
And so when we found out uh, that, that we were going back into lockdown and back into distance learning, it, it was really difficult. So there was a real grief in saying, actually, I'm not going to have five hours of silence to myself to just get things done anymore. That's not going to happen. And just having to say, right, what do I do with the reality that I have in front of me? And I feel like that's really been, again, the invitation is to say, okay, this is it. All right, I'm going to have to radically reprioritize and rejig how I do things. So I feel like that has been better this time around. So the first time I feel like I spent the first half of lockdown fighting against what was happening and just demanding that my children were alone to do their work. And that just didn't work. So now I know. I know that I'm going to get interrupted. I know that I have to wake up earlier. I know I'm going to have to do some work after they go to sleep. And I know that I need Monday morning to myself with my husband fully on deck that they go to talk to him. I've actually started scheduling some things in just five o'clock in the morning because a lot of my interviews are in the U.S. And so that way forces me to get out of bed, (laughs) forces me to just get going. And then I start my day feeling like by the time the kids get going with school at 830, 845, I've had three hours to get things done and I feel great. You don't feel feel exhausted because you've been up since 5 a.m.? No, I don't. I feel exhausted at like four. That's when I feel exhausted. But but I I need that feeling of I've gotten things done. And that is like, that's like drugs (laughs) for me. That makes me feel very good. So I discovered that I need to check things off my list and that makes me feel more motivated. Yeah. Well, gosh, in these conditions, anything that works for you, I swear. And and that's a good thing to have work for you. At this point in the conversation, I asked Debbie about a photo she'd posted on Twitter a few months ago of two books on productivity she'd been reading and found quite outrageous. Here she explains why. So I read Deep Work by Cal Newport, and his thesis of his book is basically that we need long stretches of time to do anything deep and that our brain needs it. And he goes into like the brain science research, which of course any man writing about doing anything for a long period of time without being interrupted as a wife and a mom, I immediately go, and he references the fact that he's married and that he's got two young kids. And so I, and he talks about how he still has time in the evening to read his books and whatnot because of how he structures his day. So he runs to work. That's how he gets his exercise. And honestly, I'm sitting there going, Cal Newport, who has done, who does your laundry? Who is cooking for you? Who does all of these things that I'm guessing there's an, there's a woman that who is paid or his wife to provide this service so that he is able to have his hours of deep work. And then James Clear was the most recent one, Atomic Habits. And both these books have five examples of women uh, as their examples to hold up. So they've got all of these examples of men and male research and men who are athletes and CEOs and these sort of productivity leaders and five examples of women throughout each of their books. That's unbelievable. It is. It's unbelievable. And I think when I saw that, I thought, okay, wait, I want access to what these guys are talking about. I want the benefits of deep work in my life. I want to be able to read for two hours with no one interrupting me. I want to be able to think through an article and write this essay with no one interrupting me. And I realized like, this is, this is what's up. This is what women are up against when they try to carve out meaningful work for their lives. So we know that a society needs women to meaningfully contribute. But I think we keep expecting women to meaningfully contribute while also expecting them to engage in all of these interruptions that in reality they're having to overcome to meaningfully contribute. 
in some ways, I mean, there's that cliche that women are great at multitasking. And then it's like, well, maybe it's not just this inherent skill that women have, but they've had to deal with all these structural kind of limitations on their time. Therefore, they they do get good at doing several things at once. Yeah. And I think I, I think I wonder too, Justine, if part of what we have to do as women is get ungood at it. And I think I think I've never been a very good multitasker. So I literally can't do like the the yeah, I can barely like eat and talk at the same time. So I've, I've, I have also had to say to myself and to my family, like, actually, I don't do that because that's not something I'm great at doing. And that's different, I think, obviously, from the burden of care. So emotional caring, that's different. But some of these actual tasks, I think it's important to be able to look at it as a family and say, who is also just naturally good at some of these things? And if it turns out that my husband is actually a lot better at cleaning our bathrooms, then maybe he's the one who's going to clean our bathrooms because we don't need to hold on to some sort of idea that I'm the one who has to clean because I'm wife and mom, you know, or it turns out my husband is really good actually at the schooling side with my kids. Like he's a lot better at it than I am. And so, and he's taken, he's learned to actually, that he enjoys that side of creating schoolwork for them when they've run out of schoolwork to do. So. Again, like there's some invitations here to expand our family relationships and to expand our own understanding of ourselves. I don't think that's something he thought he was particularly good at, but he's really good at schooling and enjoys teaching our kids stuff. Like one of our kids has learned photography because he took time to teach him how to use our DSLR. And so our nine-year-old now takes good photos, like real good photos and has learned a real skill. You've lived in Sweden for a time with your husband and now you're living in Australia and you're finding, like, was it, are are these quite different contexts and in terms of how care gets understood and and practiced within a family context? Yeah, well, it's totally different. There's no comparison. So in Sweden, everybody, there is no childcare in Sweden for children under the age of one, unless you were to hire a private nanny. So everyone is on some kind of parental leave in the first year of a baby's life, usually maternity and paternity leave, but definitely maternity leave for the year. And usually it kind of extends to a year and a half. But as of a year and a half, if you've got a kid at home, you are considered very strange, just very strange. Um, And so as of a year and a half, most kids are back into some form of care and it's not considered childcare. It's considered really kindergarten. So it's considered an educational environment. And then parents often will work part-time. So I would say the difference is that in Sweden, you know that you've got someone to care for your kids at a year and a half. And it's totally, it's subsidized according to your income. The most anyone will pay is like $120 US a week. That's the most. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's the most. (laughs) And they cap it. They cap it, the amount you pay. And that's for people who are earning like enormous salaries right? So it's very affordable. Dads and moms are both dropping kids off. Dad is taking leave, not just mom taking leave. So there is absolutely the expectation in Sweden of equal partnership for parents. Um, But I would say what it lacks is that village mentality. So there, there's one group of people who take care of your kids. Whereas here, it's beautiful that grandparents are involved and that there is this sort of village idea that goes into it. But I think I've never experienced um, the anxiety that moms experience the way they do here and in the U.S. definitely as well. It's very, very different. I think moms feel very alone in Australia 
in terms of how are the kids going to be cared for and the weight that they feel leaving their kids at daycare, um, I think, is very different. Justine also spoke to Natalie Ray, who's done some postgraduate study bringing the values of Christianity into productive conversation with feminism. I'll be interested to hear about that, Justine. But Natalie works full-time as a minister at an Anglican church in Sydney's Northwest and also did the bulk of the homeschooling with her two boys back when New South Wales was in lockdown over Easter. Natalie and her husband, Jason, started off with good intentions of sharing the homeschooling duties. But it turns out that as Jason's workload intensified, the majority of the home learning fell to Natalie to manage. Now on Facebook, Natalie posted updates about the whole experience. She called her homeschool Ray Academy, and this was the entry for the 1st of April, about the time homeschooling began in earnest. Academy cancelled for the rest of the day due to industrial action from teaching staff, and also students being buttheads. This was followed the next day by... You guys, Mr Dad is legit the best thing going down at Ray Academy. So Dad was clearly involved, from the start anyway. He was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And at the beginning, he had enthusiasm and um, they really enjoyed that kind of connection with him uh, and would do maths and whatever uh, and not complain. That's actually probably the biggest factor is that everything I tried to do with them, um, they pushed back against and I don't want to do it I hate this story I hate English I hate spelling I hate maths um and so we because I work full-time as well my work just happens to be a lot more flexible and people oriented um and so had a bit more give in it than my husband's work but it just meant the flexibility uh I don't know I suppose it It looked like it created all this, you know, elasticity in my schedule, but um, it just means that everything gets blown out. Nothing goes away. And so spend my mornings nagging my children to just do the English and the maths. Just do half an hour of mathletics, please. Um, And bribing them to just sit down and do something so that then I could get my stuff done the rest of the day. So you said that you work full time and you're in a very highly people oriented role. Yeah. That must be very, like, w- what was that like for you? Because you're cramming, it's not as though you have to work through spreadsheets, which is its own painful endeavor, I'm sure, when you're really tired. But, you know, investing in people is also really tiring. How did you fit that in? Badly. I fit that in badly. So I'm a minister. Um, so some of my work is like preparing materials and writing talks, and some of it is writing schedules and contingency plans that COVID threw out the window and then doing that over and over again as changes happen. Um, But with people, so there were times that I would, so especially once we were allowed to exercise with someone outside of our family, I would like arrange for someone I was meeting with to come and meet me and the kids on a quiet street in our neighbourhood and the kids could ride their bikes back and forth while I stood on a corner and chatted with whoever, um, whoever that person was. Um, I would also go out on the deck and zoom uh, on my phone out on the deck until my kids came to scoot or whatever. And then I would go hide somewhere else. Um, So I feel like I was in general, the parent who was the most accessible and my husband was set up in the study. And so he was able to kind of 
be partly just the layout of our house, he was able to be a lot less disturbed uh, than I was. Yes. But some days I just, you know, um, Mondays are typically really staff meeting heavy and I'll be in Zoom meetings for kind of three plus hours uh, and just have to, you know, I'd say to my husband, this is just the situation. And sometimes there would be schooling done and sometimes there wouldn't. And what can you do? As I reflect back on what's happened, so since we had our second child, since we've had our, since we had our first child, actually, I've worked uh, fewer hours than my husband. I've worked um, part-time. And when I started this current role, I started it three days, uh, two weekdays plus a Sunday and have worked up to five days. Uh, and part of the reason I can do that is because it has a lot of flexibility I work in the same suburb as my kids go to school and my boss is really, really values family things. So he'll totally let me nick out of staff meeting to watch uh, my son race in the swimming carnival um, and and then come back to work. And so he's really, um, really accommodating in that respect. But because I've always had the job with more flexibility, uh, I think that that led to presumptions around the ongoing flexibility of things uh, and also maybe my personal flexibility that I, my job can accommodate a certain amount, but somehow that I as a person could also accommodate that, that I could manage all of these things. Uh, and I think, you know, I haven't looked back at my Facebook posts, uh, but I suspect that they tell the story that uh, things deteriorated, like you buckle under the strain of accommodating everything and everyone uh, and carrying that load. And look, we started well-intentioned and my husband was gung-ho, but his job is less flexible and he felt um, felt the weight of uh, a possible looming recession and his sector has faced uh, lots and lots of cutbacks uh, and he felt this sense of the work I do affects people's jobs and no one expected him to be flexible mm. or certainly not flexible in doing less, um, flexible in doing more, working till 1am sometimes. Uh, even if you're working from home, it's still 1am. Gosh. Yeah. No, it's funny because in a, in a pandemic, I think we can all have some flexibility in saying, well, obviously things are going to be different for a little while. But what you've just said sort of identifies that like even before COVID, um, the ideal worker is positioned as someone who doesn't have all these extra responsibilities. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a really problematic pattern that's sitting there. And the written um, agreement that my husband has through his union is really gender neutral and offers uh, equivalent rights to men and women around parental leave and all kinds of things. It's a really great and generous policy. When it comes to implementation, uh, you know, I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure how much that's felt on the ground. And I think my suspicion is that um, lots of men feel the emotional cost of availing themselves of those options. So there's clearly structural issues of the way we've organised employment in this country that bear on this issue. There's the model of the husband slash male worker being unencumbered to do his work. And then you've got the wife slash mother slash worker 
juggling the rest of life's responsibilities. And that set of circumstances frames people's experience so that it's entirely unremarkable that in Australia, women do disproportionately more childcare and housework than men. But Natalie is a Christian minister. Does her faith shape the way she values care? And even if Christian households mirror their secular counterparts when it comes to that uneven split between men and women, should they? I wonder if one of the things that goes on with the devaluing of care is that it's often happening in less visible contexts. So if you think about aged care, we we put our elderly in homes and close the doors and other people look after them. And we send our children to school and other people look after them. Um, or to daycare, we send our sick to the hospital and other people look after them. And there's something a little bit concealed uh, and that wasn't always the way of things. You know, in pre-industrial societies, these things all took place in the home. In the home, yeah. Um, and I think in some ways we therefore also devalue those things that we hide away. And that really wasn't, that's not how Jesus rolled, I guess, I suppose one example that comes to me, uh, it's in one of the accounts of Jesus' life written by one of his followers, John, and uh, he's writing about uh, the night before Jesus dies. Uh, so he, Jesus is in, uh, in a room with his disciples. Uh, so his band of close friends and followers uh, talking to them and preparing them uh, because he says he's going to leave them. And before he launches into, uh, I guess, talking more explicitly about that, uh, he he does this really sort of weird thing uh, and washes their feet. Uh, I personally feel quite squirmy about feet because yuck. Um, but that's, you know, goodness me, I wear shoes and socks all day, uh, because it's winter in Sydney in 2020. Um, but in the ancient Near East, people wore sandals and it was yucky and dirty. And so washing feet is something that a servant would do. And frankly, I imagine not the most popular servant either. Uh, it was a really lowly thing to do. And I think in doing that, Jesus showed them a model of leadership that was completely different than the way that the world would see it. Because he showed them this attitude of, you know, I as your leader will serve you and love you in this way. Uh, it's not about honour or being impressive or having people bow down to you. I will lower myself and serve you. So Jesus gives us this example of valuing other people uh, at expense to himself to show love and care to them. So I think that example just certainly gives us something to think about uh, when we're faced with the discomforts <laughs> of caring, uh, yeah, for, for our families or others. Wouldn't that mean that in your, just going off what you've just said, wouldn't that mean that the women are the ones <laughs> who are kind of adopting the Jesus position within the marriage? Yeah. Maybe that's a good thing, right? Look, it's a good thing, but this is in everybody's Bible, not just the lady Bibles. Uh, so I think if 
you know, if the patterns that that the media are saying are revealed uh, in isolation time of women shouldering uh, a greater part of the load, if that's bearing out in Christian homes, then uh, maybe we have thinking to do. You know, I, I think it's really understandable to uh, try to do your work faithfully, but, you know, there is other work to be done. That's not your paid job uh, that Jesus uh, doesn't think he's too important for. So there you have it, Simon. I think what Natalie's talking about is not exactly a policy framework, but it's somewhere to begin anyway. Because if the leader of your religion puts service and care at the centre of his agenda and then explicitly says, you should serve each other the way that I've served you, then this has got to leave an impression, right? Yeah, that's left an impression on you and, and me too. And it's a challenging message for, for everyone, I would think. Now, Justin, you, you know, you wrote about this. You, we've done the episode. Just to finish, what... Uh, are you sort of urging people towards in this subject? Do you know, this time has made more and more evident to me that our lives are only possible because of the gifts and the sacrifice and the love of other people. And sometimes they're forced labour as well. And so just remembering that and hopefully that pushes us to be more grateful and pushes us to acknowledge their contributions and not take them for granted. I think that would be a really powerful place to begin. Yes, and also remembering not to leave it up to women to do all of this work. Yeah, exactly. Say it loud, Simon. (laughs) Say it again. (laughs) You've been listening to Life of Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart with Justine Toe. Thanks so much to Debbie Abraham and Natalie Ray for speaking with me on this episode. I found it very therapeutic. <laughs> I'm going to post all links mentioned on the show notes, including some other essential reading on this matter. Yes, thanks also to our producer, Anthea Godsmark. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend. We're working hard at CPX to contribute to a positive conversation about faith, meaning, the things that matter. Everything we produce here seeks to do just that. And it's all made possible by supporters who donate to us. We love you to consider doing that. Every bit counts. Go to lifeandfaithpodcast.com to find out more. Next week. I think sometimes we, we, we paint Jesus with a Western brush. Um, and, and surely there are elements of that. Jesus transcends culture. He doesn't defy culture. He transcends culture. So he's Eastern. But he's also had a profound influence on the West. He understands the Western individualism, the importance of Western individualism, but he also has an affinity for and a respect for Eastern collectivism. Mm